Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. 1 Thessalonians 4, <clears throat> 3 through 5. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. And this early epistle is written to encourage these believers in their faith and to also help them understand more about the eternal things of God. Up to this point, Paul's commended these believers for their faith, hope, love, service, and heart for the lost. He's defended himself, his ministry, and his motives. And then, as we saw in chapter 3, he expressed his deep love and concern for them as they are suffering for their faith. So Paul encouraged them to stay faithful and to stay focused. He also encouraged them to stand firm in the Lord always. And then Paul prayed a wonderful prayer for them. Last time, Paul began to practically show the Thessalonian Christians how they are to live out their faith, and so he told them to abound. He told them to walk well and to walk worthy. He told them to please God, and he told them to pursue a growing, sanctified life more and more and more. Paul continues to talk about this in today's passage. Let's look verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Are you ready for this? All right. The fact, the clear fact is this, that God's will for your life as a Christian is your sanctification. We talked about this last time. This is God's desired will for your life, and it's the desired will of God for the life of every believer. And while you can reject God's desired will, wisdom says to abound in this, because Christians are those who love God, and Christians are those who want to glorify Him more and more and more with their fading lives. And an abounding, sanctified life pleases and glorifies God, and It also gives you the most joy in return as you pursue what you were created to do, the glory of God, glorifying God in your life. Now remember, the word sanctification means holy and set apart. The idea of sanctification is a separation from the secular and sinful and a setting apart for a sacred purpose and for God's special use. So the word means holiness, godliness. Christ-likeness, purity, and a set-apartedness from everything that's sinful and dirty and marred and stained by sin. If you remember, there are three kinds of sanctification. First is positional sanctification, which occurs the moment of true conversion. This ties in with our justification, which is the one-time event that occurs at salvation, where we who believe are declared righteous and right by holy God, by grace, through faith in Christ, because of what He did on the cross for everyone who believes. Positional sanctification, then, is the once and for all setting apart of sinners unto God as saints. And this aspect of sanctification is possessed by every believer the moment of true conversion. See, every true believer already has been sanctified positionally. We have been once and forever separated unto God, to Himself. We have been saved. We belong to God. Done. (laughs) A second kind of sanctification is progressive sanctification, 
which is a lifelong process of growing in our practical holiness and godliness for the glory of God. This aspect of sanctification is to be earnestly pursued by every believer, and the aim is to continually be being sanctified more and more and more by becoming more and more like Christ, by using God's means of growing in holiness and of fighting, battling against sin. So, less sin and more of Christ. That's the aim. That's the goal. The third kind of sanctification is complete sanctification or ultimate sanctification, which is also called glorification. And that will happen when we will finally die and go to glory. And there, we will experience the ultimate separation from sin. And good news, we will be made perfect in heaven once and for all. Can't wait. Right? Glory forever. That's coming. Now, here in verse 3, Paul's clearly talking about progressive sanctification, our continuing growth of holiness, Christ-likeness, and purity. See, God Himself is holy in every way, and we are called to be like Him because this is what pleases Him. And it's because of His holiness that we take pleasure in pleasing God by being holy ourselves more and more and more. And just as God is separate from sin, we as children are also called to separate ourselves from sin and sinfulness more and more, becoming more Christ-like and more godly as we live out our faith in this fading life. And Paul will say in the next chapter, we are to abstain from every form of evil. And that's the goal because this is now who we are. As Paul said in verse 7, God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. So like father, like child, there should be a family resemblance. See, Thus a growing sanctified life, a life that's growing in holiness, a life that looks more and more like Christ. Look in Romans 8.29, Paul writes, For those whom God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So that's the end result, right? Being perfectly conformed to the image of Christ, who is perfect, which will indeed happen to us all as believers in the future. But until then, this is what we pursue in this life. In Ephesians 1.4, Paul wrote these words. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. So we've been saved to holiness And while glorification is indeed coming, that final aspect of our sanctification, look, this is what we must be earnestly pursuing until we arrive in glory. See, sanctification, holiness, is a mark of the saved of a true believer. I mean, think about that. Our hatred of sin should be seen with how passionately we battle against sin, with how passionately we fight against sin. And our love for the Lord should be seen by how passionately we pursue the things that glorify and please Him. Thus, the abounding, sanctified life. See, that's how it works. That makes sense. So, sanctification is not only God's desire for us, but it's not just also not just a command for us from God, but it's our heart's desire as lovers of God. We love what He loves. We hate what He hates. And this is what He loves. And we're not comparing ourselves to those uh, around us. We're not doing that. And we're not taking pride in being a little bit better than, than those around us. That's not our concern. That's not our concern at all. No. Love for God 
is what compels us and his pleasure is what motivates us. And we're not going to be content with where we're at in this life, not ever, because perfect Christ-likeness and holiness is the aim. And we're not going to reach that aim until glory. So this is what we passionately pursue until then. And the question is, how are you doing? <laughs> Please remember that you can indeed grow as a Christian. You, you can take spiritual ground because God has given us everything that we need as Christians to live a growing and godly life more and more. I mean, he's given us his spirit who lives in us and who empowers us with his divine strength. There's that. (laughs) There's his spirit, him himself. He's also given us his word, which is living, active, fully adequate and powerful for salvation and life. He's given us prayer, which is powerful and effective. And he's given us each other so that we can encourage each other and give strength to each other. So nothing's lacking. Nothing is lacking. And the question is, Will you use the means that God has given to you? And that's up to you. That's up to you. Hey, lazy Christians are the weak Christians. You're going to be lazy or you're going to be godly, Christ-like, God-pleasing. That's up to you. So, are you godly, sanctified, holy, Christ-like? Are you? What about your language? Is that holy? What about your thought life? Is that holy? And yes, we can control our thought life as Christians more and more when we saturate our minds with the mind of God found in the Word of God. What about what you look at? Holy? Well, your friends, your, your relationships, holy and Christ-like? What about your actions and your reactions, your, your attitudes, how you drive, how you work, how, how your, your, your patience, your gentleness, how you are as a spouse, as a parent, as a child? Holy? See, Holiness, sanctification extends to every part of our lives. It it influences everything we are or do or think or speak or plan, small or great, outward or inward, negative or positive. It influences our loving, our hating, our sorrowing, our rejoicing, our recreation, our, our business, our friendship, our relationships, our speech, our reading, our writing, our going out and our coming in, everything. What about you? Are you holy, sanctified, And are you growing in that in your life? Anybody here challenged by this at all? Anybody? Okay, good. Good. It's easy to get satisfied with where we are at. And that is never good for those of us who love the Lord and who want to greatly glorify Him with our fading life. I mean, more is the aim, right? More. Those who abound aren't ever satisfied with where they are at, wherever they're at. So this challenge is good for all of us. <laughs> oh, in light of the great call to be sanctified more and more, Paul shows us three practical ways that we can do that in these couple of verses. First, abstain from sexual immorality. Now, you would think that that was already self-explanatory. There's no reason for him to say that to the church, right? However, Paul felt the need to say this to the church for a reason. See, Not all those who call themselves Christians are sexually pure. Some, even in the church, are sexually immoral. So Paul felt the need to say this here. I mean, how sad is that? Abstain. Abstain from sexual immorality. The word abstain conveys the idea of putting distance between something. Here, the call is for the Christian to hold oneself far away 
from contact or any influence of any kind of sexual immorality. Stay away from it, run from it, flee it, don't go near it. The word abstain is in the present tense, which tells us that we must continually, constantly keep away from sexual immorality because it is dangerous to our souls. Stay far away. In Ephesians 5, 3, Paul says these words. Same idea. Fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. So in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, abstain from sexual immorality. And in Ephesians, he says, it shouldn't even be named among us. And it's the same idea. It's the same thought. What does it mean? It means that not only should these things not be practiced by us in Christ, they shouldn't even be mentioned. Unless you're preaching it. (laughs) Right? Of course, I mean, this doesn't mean that it's wrong to mention these sins for the purpose of rebuking them or in cautioning those of the danger of committing them. No, but these things shouldn't be discussed in any way that might lessen their sinful and shameful character. One noted, to jest about a thing or to make it a frequent subject of conversation is to introduce it into the mind and to bring nearer the actual doing of it. And he's right. So Paul warns them that some things aren't safe even to talk about or to, to joke about. It's not, it's not funny. Hey, how do you get a nation to accept wretched, sick sin? You name it. You name it. You mention it on TV and in the media, and then you mention it again, then you mention it again, and pretty soon people get desensitized to the sin, and pretty soon the sin is everywhere, and soon people aren't even bothered by things that should disgust them. So Paul says in Ephesians, let let it not even be named among you, and he adds this, as is fitting for the saints, and there's that word, that's the same word for sanctified. So it's fitting for us to not do these things, and not only that, but to not even have these things be named amongst us. The Greek word for fitting means proper, suitable, and distinguishable. It speaks of a trait that stands out and that distinguishes you from others. What? The absence of these sins. These sins should be dreaded and they should be detested by us in Christ. I mean, that makes sense, right? We belong to God. We are the set-apart ones. We're to live like that. And so these sins aren't to be mentioned, much less permitted. Paul goes on and lists six sins that shouldn't be named in that Ephesians passage. And the first one, anybody? Fornication, which is the same Greek word as sexual immorality. Talking about the same thing. So what then is sexual immorality? The Greek word is porneia. It originally referred to any excessive behavior or lack of restraint, but it eventually became associated with sexual excess and indulgence. The word is used in the Bible to describe any sexual activity outside of marriage. It includes adultery, premarital sex, homosexuality, prostitution, on and on and on and on it goes. So look, biblically, Sex is good and honoring to God within the marriage covenant, but outside the marriage covenant, it is sinful. But please note that just because you're married, there's still a whole lot of sexual sin to go around, and there's a long list of sexual sins that are committed every day in Christian homes, homes that these things shouldn't even be named in. Note that in that culture, Gentile pagan worship involved sex temple prostitutes, and all kinds of other shocking, dirty things ruled in that culture. Sound familiar? (laughs) One noted, the ancient world regarded sexual immorality so lightly, it wasn't considered a sin at all. 
It was the expected thing that a man should have a mistress. In places like Corinth, the great temples were staffed by hundreds of priestesses who were sacred prostitutes and whose earnings went for the upkeep of the temple. I mean, it's sick, sick stuff. So fornication and all kinds of sexual act, uh, sin was the norm in that society, and it's also the norm in our society, but not for us in Christ. What happens around us doesn't really matter, right? What God says is what matters. And even if the world around us thinks we're crazy, so be it. We aren't out to please the world. We're out to glorify God. And God is very clear on this issue. Not even a hint. Abstain. Stay away. See, as a Christian, you can't indulge in any kind of fornication or sexual immorality. It is not for you. Instead, we're called to purity. We're called to holiness, to godliness, to a growing, sanctified life. So the question is, is God pleased with your behavior in this area? Your, what about your thoughts? What about what you look at? What about what you dwell on? See, that's included. That's included here. Again, within marriage, sex is beautiful, fulfilling, and as a protective effect against immorality. Outside marriage, sex is ugly, destructive, sinful, and like fire. See, in a fireplace, a fire is warm and comforting. Outside the fireplace, a fire is destructive and uncontrollable. Sexual immorality is like that, and Christians are to have nothing to do with it. And not just sex, but any sexual activity outside of marriage, including things that you shouldn't look at or dwell on. And sadly, this is indeed an epidemic in our society, and this will mar not only your relationship with God, but also your relationship with others. It's dangerous. And it'll impact you for the bad. You've been warned. One note of this. Don't dabble with pornea, sexual immorality. Don't trifle with it, argue about it, debate it, explain it. Certainly don't try to rationalize it as a spiritual challenge to be met, but see it as a spiritual trap to be escaped. Cut the dripping faucet off at the first drop. Get away as fast as you can. God gives such a clear and strong command because pornea is so serious, corrupting, and shattering to spiritual relationships, both human and divine. So, flee. And that's exactly right. Abstain. Abstain. Second, to be sanctified, you must possess your own vessel. Verse 4. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Okay, what does that mean? Commentators are divided about this. It's really quite interesting. Some say that here, Paul's calling believers to exercise self-control over their own bodies. Others say, this is interesting, that the Greek word for vessel is sometimes used to denote a man's wife. (laughs) On top of that, the Greek word for possess can also mean to acquire. So they say that a man must learn to acquire a wife so that he can then avoid sexual sin. But guess what? If the mind and heart isn't right, a wife isn't going to change that. See? No. Instead, I think it's very clear that here, Paul is telling both men and women to control themselves when it comes to their sexual passions. And good news for those of us in Christ, we can control ourselves. Note that Paul says each one of you, and that means every Christian, not just the Christians in Thessalonica, but even us today. And this is something we must do. Control ourselves. Control our bodies. 
The call is to gain uh, the knowledge and the skill to be able to have mastery over ourselves, our vessel, our bodies. That's not easy. I mean, this is a battle. And while we've been made new in Christ with new natures and with God the Spirit Himself indwelling us, it's still a battle. We talked about this last week because we have this old flesh that clings to us uh, to contend with. But again, if this is our call and it's something that we can grow in more and more when we use the means that God has so graciously given to us. In 1 Corinthians 6.12, Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. That's good. He then says in verse 13, the body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. In other words, the body can't be allowed to do whatever the body wants. The body can't be allowed to master you. And even though the world will say, hey, it's only natural to give way to your passions. Paul says, no, that is sin. And we in Christ can't do whatever the body wants to do. No, we're to control our bodies for the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul says, I buffet my body, I discipline my body, and I bring it into subjection. In other words, I beat up my body and I control it. I make it my slave for the glory of God. How? You do that by walking in the Spirit. Okay, how? You do that by letting the Word of Christ richly indwell you, and then using all the means that God has so graciously given to you, which we already talked about. And look, as the Word of God saturates your life, and your mind, well, that's when the Spirit of God really begins to move in His power, filling, and control. So what are you going to do about it? That's the question. How about this? Dive into the Word of God. Dive in. Dive into the Word. Not just a superficial reading of the Word of God, no, but a serious apprehension of, comprehension of, and application of the Word of God in your life. And many Christians don't dip their toes even into the water. That's why they're so mediocre in their sanctification. May that not be the case here. Let's dive in. That's, 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 there's power in the Word of God. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to powerfully move in the believer's life. I've seen this a number of times where a man will come up to me and complain about what a female is wearing in church. He says, she needs to stop wearing that. She's a stumbling block. She needs to dress more appropriately. You know what that tells me? It tells me that the man has a problem. He can't control himself. And while women are called to dress modestly and, and in a way that honors the Lord, of course, hey, men, control yourselves. Look the other way. Get a grip. And by the way, when a man complains to me, it's often the case that the female wasn't dressed inappropriately at all. No, the man had the problem. In some churches, women have to dress a certain way. It's a rule. So they wear loose dresses with high collars all the way down to the ground, sleeves all the way down to the hand. And inevitably, a man who can't control himself will have an issue. Oh, pastor, I saw her ankle and it made me stumble. No, I'm serious. And the issue isn't her. The issue is you control yourself control yourself women too i mean this is for all of us right control yourself and don't blame others when you can't control yourself what you look at what you watch what you dwell on what you think on control yourself in fact don't let anything master you except for christ i mean that includes your sexual appetites of course but 
anything else as well. I mean, from your eating to how you spend your time to what you look at to, to that computer game that you like to play at night and so on and so on. What a challenge. Lord, help us to rise to the challenge for the glory of God. Control yourself and don't let anything master you but Christ. Challenging to anybody besides me? Seriously. Look what Paul adds. Know how to control your own body in sanctification and honor. Sanctification, again, means holiness, purity, and being separated unto God from sin. And we are to control our bodies for that end. Look, our body is to be set apart for the service of God. Our body is to be used as a sacred instrument that's devoted to the service of the Lord. So in a world that says, if it feels good, do it, Christians realize that feeling good often has lasting and painful ramifications, and it dishonors both you and the Lord oftentimes. In a culture that prioritizes immediate gratification, Christians realize that good things are enjoyed and preserved only in the proper place and setting. In a world that urges us to define our own morality, Christians embrace their allegiance to a loving Lord who calls us to holiness for the glory of God. See, you're not your own anymore as a Christian. No, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Think about it. Jesus died for you. You now belong to Him. And since we are obtained at such a tremendous expense, Christ suffering and dying a brutal death on the cross as our substitute as believers, look, we are now to use our bodies to honor God with good deeds and with holy actions. On top of that, He lives in us, so we take Him with us wherever we go. So, do you really want Him looking at what you just looked at? Or do you really want him doing what you just did the other day that you shouldn't have done? He was there because he lives in you. And we do well to think about these things. So control yourself. Use your body for godly things, not sinful, forbidden things. Things that we would never want him to see and things that we would never want him to do. Paul also adds the word honor. Know how to control your own body in sanctification and honor. Honor refers to the worth or merit of something. This then means that your body is to be so holy and God-honoring that it's worthy of respect toward the God who owns it, toward the God who dwells in it, toward the God whom it represents. The thought is to use your body for the glory of God, not to indulge in sinful lust, no, but for His glory, His service, things that honor Him, the the fruit of the Spirit, for, for loving God and loving others, for battling passionately against sin and for abounding more and more in the things that please God. Use your body to do those things. Third, to be sanctified, you must not be overcome by the passion of lust. Verse 5, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, don't act like Gentiles who don't know God. Don't act like pagans. Don't act like the unsaved. Now here Paul presents a dramatic contrast with the pagan worldview, with the unsaved worldview. See this phrase, passion of lust conveys an exceedingly strong expression of uncontrolled and unbridled desire of an out of control craving for sin which is a benchmark of non-believers i mean look at the world around us there you see that abounding so paul's plainly stating that the sexual conduct of believers should be drastically different than the prevailing conduct of unbelievers for self-control is a characteristic of a spirit-filled spirit-led Christian life. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that the unsaved Gentiles are given to lewdness, which conveys the same thing as this word, this phrase, passion of lust. Lewdness, see, refers to a person who casts off all restraint and has no regard, not even for public decency. 
F.F. Bruce calls lewdness a vice that throws off all restraint and flaunts itself. And that's a marker of the unsaved world. A couple of years ago, Tiff and I went out on a date, a musical at the Orpheum Theater in San Francisco. Before the musical, we went out for a late lunch a few miles away. It was great, but it was Pride Week. We got caught in the middle of Pride Week as we tried to get to the theater. What did we see? Well, we didn't just see people protesting something. We didn't just see that. No, we saw some things that people should be utterly ashamed of. We saw some disgusting things, some sick things, and yet these are things that were proudly being displayed in a public setting. See, without God's Spirit to convict us from within, and as people suppress the truth of God in their lives and in society, lewdness and a casting off of sin is a result, and that is indeed a mark of the sinful world today. But it shouldn't be a mark in us as Christians. Paul goes on in that Ephesians verse and says how the unsaved world um, work all uncleanness with greediness. And like lewdness and passion of lust, this also refers to an insatiable appetite for this kind of sexual sin. See, pursuing uncleanness and greed feeds on itself because what once was new and exciting and pleasurable soon becomes boring and unfulfilling. So the sinner has to seek new levels and new depths of perversion. Like using drugs, giving yourself over to sensuality and impurity becomes enslaving. And that too is a mark of the unsaved world. Sin, enslavement, perversion, uncleanness, lust, and so on. And again, all you have to do is look at the world, generally speaking, and this abounds. This abounds. So they reject the Lord. Their thinking is sinful and that leads to sinful actions. Now some might be thinking, Paul's being a little bit extreme here. I know many unbelievers who don't fit this dire description in these verses. They're decent, moral people. I know many people like that. They're faithful in their marriages. they, They love their children. They're responsible to work and to pay their bills. They're good neighbors. And so how how does what Paul says here apply to them? They're not believers, but they're decent people. Well, first, in God's grace, God restrains people from being as bad as they possibly could be. We don't want to be as bad as we could be, right? I mean, if God let all sinners go, then the human race would have self-destructed centuries ago. People are not as bad as they can be, no, but even so, sin taints every part of our being. It corrupts our minds, our emotions, our wills, and our bodies. But because of His grace, His benevolence, His mercy, God restrains the evil of the fallen human heart so that unbelievers can be kind and loving and responsible people. That said, these descriptions are still true, and we see that, again, when we look at the unsaved world, generally speaking, all around us. And even though we might know many decent unbelievers, look, they still have the sin problem. And without Jesus to rescue them, they will indeed end up alienated from God and the life of God forever. Note also that God looks not only at the outward behavior, but God looks to the heart. God's assessment when he looked at the wickedness of the human race just before the flood was that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. After the flood, God's assessment of that didn't change. He said in Genesis 8.21, For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And then in Jeremiah 17.9, it says this, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we find that if God were to let any one of us go, then indwelling sin would impel us toward all manner 
of evil and corruption. There's wickedness. Praise the Lord for His grace. I'm serious. Note this. Even though we might know many non-Christians who aren't or who don't seem as bad as these descriptions here, these descriptions are still true of them nonetheless. Non-Christians are lost. They are blind. They reject the truth that can save them. Hell is a reality for all of them. Sin marks and mars them. They belong to the wicked one. The Bible is clear about that. Their thinking is wrong. Their life is wrong according to the God who created them. They need Jesus to rescue them. And so do we continually. But look, we must be different. We love Christ and we can't live like we used to live. Not anymore. So instead of living in sin, reveling in sin, embracing sin, being friends with sin, and growing callous to sin, we hate it, and we battle it, and we flee it, and we pursue Christ with passion and fervor, endeavoring with all our might, and with all the great resources that God has given to us, to be growing in our sanctification for the glory of God, because love compels us to do this. As John Piper said, the way to fight the passion of lust is to feed faith with the knowledge of an irresistible, glorious God. You know, that? did you know God this morning through his word? Are you growing week by week in knowledge of God's greatness? Do you meditate on his word day and night? Do you ponder the picture of his son in the gospels? Do you look at everything in your day as his creation? Do you pray for a sensitive heart that can be ravished by the revelation of his glory? I can tell you, uh, no, I call you to make those commitments now for the sake of your own soul. And for the glory of God. So embrace the means of growth. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Resist the devil and He will flee. And lovingly live up to who you are in Christ more and more. Now look, the passion of lust is how the Gentiles who don't know God act, not us. So this way of living isn't for us in Christ, not anymore. In Ephesians 5.8, Paul writes, You were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Same idea. Same thought. Yeah, we were once darkness, but that's not who we are anymore. We are now light in the Lord, and that changes everything. And look, light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, because this is who we are. In 1 John 5, 7, it says that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Talking about the, the nature of God, the essence of God, that He's light as opposed to darkness. Not physical light, but it's talking about who God is ethically, who God is morally, he's light. Theologians believe that this refers to two primary qualities about God. First is truth, and second is holiness or purity. And it's these two qualities that jump out when we think of God as light. That means that God is a source and measure of everything that's true. And it also reveals God's absolute holiness and purity. In him is no darkness, no sin, no evil, no wickedness whatsoever. So what then does Paul mean when he says that you, the believer, the Christian, you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Darkness is describing who we were. Darkness is describing who we belonged to before we were saved, talking about a life without God, a life without the hope and the, the of spiritual cleansing and forgiveness, a life without the hope of heaven, a, a life of emptiness and futility, a, a meaningless life, a purposeless life, a sad life, a wasted life, a life based on a lie, a life that ends with eternity in hell. That's who we once were, but not anymore. If in fact, we've surrendered to Christ in true repentant faith. Why? Because he changes everything. He transfers us from the kingdom of darkness 
to the kingdom of light. He makes us who were once spiritually dead, spiritually alive. And now we who believe, we are light in him. How's that possible? By grace through faith in Christ. Because of what he did on the cross for everyone who believes. See, Jesus is God the Son. And he left heaven and he came here. He took on human flesh, 100% God and 100% man at the same time. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in the believer's place. And three days later, he rose up from the dead. And that changes everything. And for all who believe in the person and work of Jesus in true repentant faith, our sins that condemned us to hell and eternal wrath are put onto him, which he took and paid for in full on the cross as the believer's substitute. And then his perfect life is credited to us, which allows rebels like us to be justified, cleansed, forgiven of all our sin, and perfectly fitted with the righteousness of Christ, which then allows us access to God and to the eternal glories of heaven forever, all because of Christ. And now, for all who believe, for all who repent and turn away from sin and from that old life and who turn to God in true faith, what? Forgiveness. Cleansing. Heaven. Eternal glory. Moving from darkness to light. From being a child of Satan to being a child of God. Now, now that you're saved, live like it. Not like you used to when you were darkness. See, makes sense? I mean, why would we ever want to go back to the darkness as children of God? Why would we ever want to go back to the dirtiness, the stain, the stench, the filth of what we once were? No, we, we love Him now. We, we walk to please Him now. We pursue sanctification based on our love for Him now. Like father, like son or daughter, we are children of God and it should show more and more and more. And the question is, does it? Some here, some here are feeling extremely guilty right now. Good. As long as that drives you to your knees and back to the Lord. That's very good. Others maybe are wallowing around in their guilt for past sins that are still haunting them to this day. Even though they repented of those sins and gave them over to the Lord a long time ago. Stop it. Stop wallowing around. No. Trust God to forgive you. Trust God to cleanse you, which He is very good at. Thank you very much. Give your sin over to the Lord. Believe what He says when He says that He forgives you and when, that He remembers your sin no more and get on with it. Get on with the holy, God-pleasing, sanctified life. Put that behind you and move on forward. That should be our motto, forward or more for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be convicted in a good way that motivates us to growing sanctification and holiness in our lives. We stumble in many ways. We are not perfect. So this challenges all of us here. Help us to receive this challenge, Lord. Help us give us ears to hear so that we can then give it over to you and pursue the things that glorify you. For those who have failed and messed up in the past, Lord, may they give it to you, repent and and give it to you and move on. 
May they not wallow around in guilt and muck. May they give it to you and move forward for your glory, honor, and praise. Help us, Lord. We just want um, to glorify you. Sanctify us more and more. And may your truth today um, encourage us in that for your glory. We love you. We thank you. Thank you for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.